I remember, I remember the first day, uh, my first day of the first college class I ever took. I remember it like it was yesterday, the start of my college career. I was so excited, number one, to like be on my own and Mr. Independent, eight hours from home, no one to say, Phil, are you home yet? I was so excited to be on my own that it didn't prepare me for what was about to happen. Uh, I was excited because I knew God had called me to preach. I just knew it. And I show up and I get to go to this really great college and graduate, hopefully in four years, and to be able to do that. Uh, So I was pretty excited and then it happened. I get to the classroom. I, I show up early as I tend to do. And I like to be prepared, so I picked the perfect seat, you know, where I could still see the exit because of, like, safety, but where I could also still see the professor and all my surroundings, like, you know, wherever, I was just perfect. And I sat down, and I got out all my stuff. I got my, I had a Bible, you know, it's Bible college, so you should probably bring one of those. I had a notebook. I had my phone on silent. I even had my computer in my bag. Because I had heard that sometimes college professors speak really fast, so you got to type. I am ready to go. Bring it on. So as the on-time people started coming, I started thinking back. Like, man, I remember the first time I preached and how special that was to me. And I thought of the next four years, the transformation that was going to happen, and how I would get to graduate, and how I would get to teach and preach, share a platform with people and to tell people about Jesus. And I was so excited to be able to sit in someone's living room and help them just open up the Bible and understand what it means, understand who this Jesus guy is. I was even excited for the times I'd get to go to a hospital and people who are at their very low, I'd get to just say something or just be present with them and to, and to bring some sort of hope. I was so excited. Then it happened. Class started. And as soon as the professor opened his mouth, I thought to myself, oh no, what did I do? I got to get out of here. Where's the fire alarm? I got to pull something. I got to get out of here. Because as I looked around, he was using words that everyone else seemed to know what he was talking about. And I had no clue. He used words that everyone else apparently, they were church words that they learned in Sunday school. I never went to Sunday school. And I, as, I, as I saw all these students start to get what he was saying, I'm like, oh, these guys grew up in the church. These are the people who, when they were two weeks old, they were being held by a volunteer in the nursery. I felt like I was in a nursery then because I felt like I just knew nothing. And then it dawned on me that as I looked around, I saw preacher's kids, lifelong followers of Jesus, College professors and homeschoolers. Like homeschoolers, for some reason, know a lot about the Bible. And I'm like, I just felt outcast. I felt like I didn't even belong there. I had no right to be there. I felt like an outcast, completely alone. And it began to dawn on me that my next four years could very well be a feeling of being all alone, eight hours from home. Now, don't feel sorry for me, not that you would. But don't feel sorry for me because I actually used that. That, that. that was a transforming day for me. And I used that to actually tailor the way that I communicate. That's the reason why I preach and why I teach the way that I do. You'll notice I always cater to the people who in this kind of situation, being in an environment like this would feel lost. I always cater to them first because I know what that's like. And many of us forget what that was like. 
And I love to communicate with, with those people first because I am one of those people that didn't grow up in this. So it shaped the way that I communicate and I was so thankful that I had people pushing me along the way in college to stay, stay going and to get really good grades and then to graduate and be able to do what I do now. And I'm thankful for the good years, I'm thankful for the hard years as there are in college, but, but it's really great. But I, I wanted to tell you that story because I want to ask you if you've felt that way before. Have you ever felt like an outcast? Have you ever felt like you just don't belong whether it's in church or your family, where, work, wherever it is, have you ever felt maybe like you've been outcast? Because I'm certain that every single time we gather in a place like this for a worship service, there are people who feel very much alone. There are people who feel very much like they're outcasts because they're not used to this type of environment. They're not used to, like, they feel shame because they think all of the rest of us have this together if they only knew, but they feel alone. And, and there's some of us that not, we just don't feel alone at church. It's just everywhere, right? You just feel like an outcast. Like you really just wander along. You're not sure where you belong. And some will admit it. If you ask if you feel alone, they'll say, yeah, I really do. I really do. But then there's others of us who like to say we don't. We like to paint on a happy face and go, no, I'm good. Got it all together. But really what's behind all of that is this very real feeling of feeling like we just don't have a place. And because we don't have a place, we feel like maybe we aren't that important. Like maybe we don't even matter. We feel like outcasts. I think of your work, okay? At your work, some of us really feel like this because depending on where you work, sometimes you feel glanced over. For a couple of years, uh, when I was home from college, I worked in a factory. And I know not every factory is probably like this, but this one really was. I felt like an outcast. They even stuck me on the back of the, of the line. They called it the leper colony. It was that far removed from everything. And there I was as a teenager, all alone from four to midnight while my friends Friends are having fun. I was feeding rubber into an extruder and nobody said a word to me unless, of course, I fell asleep and the rubber didn't keep coming out and then they'd say something. Some of us feel alone at what we do at our work. Some of us feel like outcasts at church. Now, if you came in today and you're not part of the Lebanon Christian Church community, you probably do feel a little bit outcast because you take a look around and you go, these people kind of like each other. That's a little weird. I'm not used to that. And, and that makes you maybe feel like you don't belong. But I hope you know, and I hope we've done a good job at removing all the barriers that could get in the way of this, that you know that this could be your story too. This is a welcoming place. And yeah, we do like each other. It's not saying there's not, there, there's not conflict sometimes, but what makes a healthy family is working through conflict. And yeah, we'd love to have you be a part of this. But there, I also want to talk to people who, you belong to the church, you are a part of the church, you maybe serve every week, but you still feel alone, don't you? You still feel like you're outcasts because of that thing, because of that past guilt, because of your scenario that maybe it's a rare scenario that you don't think anybody else really understands. And some of us can serve all the time and we can appear on the outside like we have everything together, but really in reality we don't at all. And we feel outcasts just from being right here. And then I think about your house, your home. Some of us really feel like outcasts there. Maybe nobody really gets you. Maybe you're a student and you feel like your parents don't really give you the time of day. Or they don't really listen to how you're processing things and dialogue with you. Or your siblings get all the attention over you. Some of us feel alone in our own homes. 
And I think of as you age. Many people don't recognize that our elderly, as you age, they don't know what that's like. And they, they don't know how to empathize. And they don't know what it's like to be able to look and see that you used to be able to do stuff that maybe, maybe you can't do now. And then the culture changes. And all you're told as an aging person is, oh, that's just the way it is. Get with the program. Instead of someone trying to walk alongside you, help you understand. And you feel outcast. Like, you don't even recognize the culture anymore. You don't even belong. Can I just come out and say it? All of us, we could go on and on. All of us have felt that way before. All of us have felt like an outcast, and maybe even we're actually outcasts from our family group, from our friends, from our church, maybe. All of us have felt that way before, and, and maybe you're here feeling that way now. Here's what I'm going to tell you, that what we preach today, I think every single person needs to hear. It's part of our Come to Jesus series, and this is week three, and we're going to talk about the outcasts, how Jesus comes to the outcasts. And I think all of us need to hear this because there's some hope in this message. But why do we feel like outcasts? Well, today we're actually going to figure out a few reasons why we feel that way. And what we're going to do even more than that is we're going to tear down the barriers. We're just going to go and tackle this thing head on to why do we feel this way and how can we not feel this way? Now, I'm not this super optimistic, everything is awesome, super fluffy kind of guy. So I won't, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes, but just... Consider this. If you feel alone, if you feel like you're outcast, what if it didn't have to be that way? What if it's really not that way? And what if I told you that if you feel like you have no place, that you actually do have a very real place? And you have a place in God's story, whether or not you believe in him, he wants you to have a place in a story, and that Jesus provides that place. The whole tagline of this entire series is Jesus came near to us so that we could come near to him. But allow me to go further. If for some reason, if for whatever reason right now, you feel like you have no place or that your story is just at a dead end, what if I told you it's not over? It's not over as long as you have breath, no matter how faint. It's not over. And I know that there's a story that we can go to, one place, a story that we can go to that will actually provide us with some hope. It's a famous story that when we start talking about it, if you've grown up in church or you've been around church for a little bit, you know what the story is. It's a story about a woman. A woman who knows, ex who knows exactly what you feel like when you're alone, when you're judged, maybe when you feel persecuted, when other people label you. She, she knows what it's like. And in fact, she actually wasn't even a good person. And maybe you feel that way right now, but I'm willing to bet that most of us in here are really good people. But she actually wasn't. What she did labeled her an outcast who deserved to die in her culture. She was not a good person. And if you feel that way right now, I hope that what we're about to talk about gives you some sort of hope. So let me just set the stage for you for this story. Jesus, he just taught for an entire day. Okay, every time he went to a different city, he'd go to one place, typically first, the temple. He'd go, always go there, and he'd teach. And he's taught the whole day, and he's tired. So Jesus has that place. You know what I'm talking about, guys, your man cave. Or the she shed, for you ladies, don't want you to be left out. Got your she shed, your man cave. It's that place that you unplug, right? It's that place that you go to just be alone, to just recharge. Jesus had several of them, and they typically involved the wilderness, but Jesus had those. All, for me, it's the garage. I like being out there. What's it for you? He had that man cave. It was called the Mount of Olives in this, in this 
instance. So Jesus goes, he has a full day of teaching, and these really annoying people, you know, everyone has that when you teach, these really annoying people, they were actually the religious people, kept, they showed up that day, they gave him some trouble, they're always contradicting what he says in front of everyone, that's really awkward, isn't it? When you're teaching and someone else stands up to say you're wrong, he had that, that whole day. So he's tired, so he leaves, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he relaxes, and, and we're told, because of other instances where this kind of thing happened, that Jesus spent the spends the whole night praying and being with God. So he comes back the next day to the exact same temple. He goes in and we're told he sits down and he starts to teach. And as everyone knew who he was, so people started piling in. People are sitting, trying to get a seat and they're all sitting down and they're listening to Jesus teach. And then it happens. The same crowd, these annoying people come back but differently than they did the day before. This time when they come, they bring with them somebody else. It's a woman. And that didn't happen in this day. And she's not coming willingly. They, they drag this woman. that She's their prisoner. And they bring her before Jesus. And what happens next is so, so powerful. It's found at the very, very end of John chapter 7. One of Jesus' closest friends, it starts in verse 53, then bridges over in chapter 8. And if you follow along today, you're going to notice that this text actually looks different than the rest. It's separated by columns or it's separated in, it's in italics unlike the rest of John's gospel. Here's why. I'll just tell you why really quick. What happened was John wrote his gospel and then people started reading it and it started circulating, right? Well, then they found this story. Uh, we're not sure how, but they found this story and they felt like it, it, a lot of scholars think this is how it made its way in the John. They thought it had a lot of the same characteristics as John's writing. So they said, well, let's just put it in John. So that's why it's separated because our translators wanted us to know, hey, this wasn't part of John's original gospel, but you can trust its source. And we're really glad that it's in here because of what we learned today. It's life-changing what we learned today. Here's how this story reads, okay? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He goes to his man cave. At dawn, he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around them and he sat down to teach. So he sits down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those annoying religious people, come back. And they bring with them a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, you can almost hear the mocking tone, teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, to kill her. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus is really in a situation. Because on one hand, if he says, no, let her go, he contradicts the law. And the law, if he's really a Jewish rabbi, he can't contradict that. But on the other hand, if he says, yeah, go ahead and kill her, he contradicts himself because Jesus was the guy running around loving everybody and forgiving people's sins. So what's he going to do? What's going to happen? Nothing. Seriously, here's what he does. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. They probably thought that was weird. I added that part. So when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he went back and he started writing on the ground. 
isn't Jesus odd sometimes? You're allowed to say that. It's just weird. Why would you do that? Who does that? Jesus. And some like to speculate what he was writing on the ground. We don't really know. He, maybe he was drawing a picture of a unicorn. We don't really know. The, the point, the power was in what he said to the accusers. If you are without sin, throw a stone. Throw a stone. So what happens? If you've read the story before, you know what happens. What's the verdict for this very obviously guilty woman in this day? What happens? Here's what happens. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably because they're a lot smarter than us younger guys. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And next it reads, and Jesus straightened up. And it's almost as if he's like, oh, you're still here? He says, woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. The verdict is free. Free to live. Free to live different. So I ask you, do you see yourself in the story? Maybe not yet, but with a little help, you will. So I think we're going to see ourselves in a few ways in this story, and I actually think probably we see ourselves in all of these ways we're going to highlight, but for sure, at least one of them. Because many of you feel like you're outcasts. And the first one is maybe you feel outcasts from what you've done wrong. This woman was not a good person. And where's the guy that she was cheating with? So the way the law worked is when you caught people in adultery, it wasn't just the woman who got stoned to death. It was the man too. They were both to be put to death. So where's he at? Some think he fled and ran away, but some actually think that the religious leaders said, eh, we don't need you. We just want her. We're about to trip Jesus up. It's really messed up. But where's he at? We don't know. But either way, this woman stands condemned before this crowd. She is guilty because of what she has done wrong. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like because of what you've done wrong that you are unworthy? Do you feel like because of what you've done wrong you are outcast? If people only knew your past or if they knew what you think sometimes, they would never accept you. Like this woman, you feel stuck. Like this woman, you can't shake the things of the past and how they keep you pressed down and you feel stuck and almost like you're a prisoner. You feel shameful for what you've done in the past. Let me just tell you something, and you'll know this when you read every word of Jesus, that shame is never the love language of Jesus. There's a big difference, and we have to differentiate these two, between conviction and guilt. You see, conviction leads to freedom because conviction makes us actually want to change for the right reasons. That's what Jesus wants you to feel. But guilt leads to shame, and what shame's going to do is keep you prisoner forever. Many of us feel guilt for what we've done wrong instead of conviction to make a difference in the change. Shame is not the love language of your heavenly Father. It's not the love language of Jesus. You've got to know that. And here's the hope for you. That if for some reason you feel like you're an outcast because of what you've done wrong in the past, Jesus trades you what you've done wrong and he gives you a place in God's story. That's called grace. 
He removes what you've done and he gives you a place in God's story. That's your hope. But we know that what we've done wrong isn't the only thing that makes us feel like an outcast, is it? What if we feel outcast from what others have labeled us? From what others have labeled you? Culture is infatuated with labels, aren't they? Aren't we? We're infatuated with labels. We label everything. But we also label every person. Well, he's got a temper. Well, he's hard to get along with. Well, she's too into her looks. Or she gossips. And he, 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 she, she. We are really into labels. They're a little bit extra. And what happens, while some of those labels are probably true and rightfully earned, sometimes we feel so pressed down by what other people have labeled us that we don't feel any hope or freedom of getting free from those labels. They start to become our reality, don't they? And we're not free from them. But here's what Jesus does for this woman. She's labeled something, something very not nice, as deserving death and a forever outcast in that culture. And here's what Jesus does to her. He trades her that label for another one. And it's the only one that will ever matter. And in fact, he's offering the same label to you. If you follow Jesus, he's already given it to you. If you don't follow Jesus, he wants to label you as this. One thing, it's the only thing that will ever matter. God's son or God's daughter. That's the label he gives this woman. He takes the shame and he gives her a label, my daughter. Or you may be my son. A lot of us can understand at this point, and I hope you're starting to feel some hope maybe for the things you've done wrong. That's the first thing. But maybe, maybe the, what other people have labeled you. Because some of us have really earned our labels. <laughs> Someone, some of us, maybe some unfair labels are given to us. But I hope you see that. But there's still one more. One more thing that makes us feel outcast. And I saved this for our, for our last one because I think it's the biggest one, especially in our culture. You can be free from your past mistakes and free from what other people have labeled you, but what about what you label yourself? What about what you tell yourself? What about the lies that you start to believe about yourself? Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And you'll notice in this story, when you go back and read it, try to picture the woman's reaction. She, we never get the indication she runs anywhere. We never get the indication she's like, no, I'm not guilty, and it's a false accusation, it's false news. She doesn't. She accepts it. She accepts and believes the lie. And she believes she's to be put to death, and she waits it. She awaits it. She waits for death. And some of us are still living that way, but here's the hope for you, because I think Jesus has something in store for you if that's you. Here's the hope. That you may believe the truth, or you may believe the lies of what you've labeled yourself. You may believe them, but Jesus does not. He doesn't believe it. And in fact, what Jesus does, and this is the really fascinating thing, is he trades you what you think about yourself, and he gives you what he knows about yourself. He trades you for what he knows about you about who he knows you can become and are becoming. Because when we follow Jesus, we are in a constant state of becoming more and more like him. We can't forget that. He trades you the shame of what you've believed about yourself, and he gives you what he knows is true about you. That's what he gives. That's the hope. That's the hope. So I'm wondering if, if you see it yet. 
You're probably thinking, see what? I'm wondering if you see what your next step should be. And you might say, Philip, I think you're reading that wrong because she didn't do anything. If I'm supposed to be like her and, and identify with her, she didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. Exactly. What she did was receive. She received a place in God's story. A new identity. And freedom from the lies. Here's some free advice. Take it for what it's worth, but stop trying to earn your place. Because it's already been given. Receive what's being given to you. Because Jesus is giving something right now. First, receive your place in God's story. Because you probably live with some shame of some things in the past. If you don't, I'm really glad. But most of us do. Receive the forgiveness of that in the place that God has given you as his, to come into his kingdom. Be free from that. You know, this woman didn't even ask for a place in God's story, and he gave it to her anyway. All you've got to do is ask, and it's yours. Receive it. Receive your place. Next, receive your new name. Receive your new label, your new identity. This one's powerful. The reality is, you probably walked in here today with some labels. And a further reality is, some of those labels are probably true. This is not about covering up the obvious. You might be really hard to get along with. You might lie sometimes. Some of those labels are true. And, and what happens is sometimes because of what others have labeled us, we start to believe those. And the freedom of our true label or one label is taken away from us. God's son or God's daughter, those are the only ones that matter. All you have to do is receive that label. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. Nothing will ever take that from you. I was a little nervous for this next part of the message. Sometimes when, you, when you're writing a message and you're, you're praying through it, you feel God tell you to do something that you're like, I'll be honest, I'm like, God, I think they'll think that's weird. I don't want to do it. So I skip over, I keep writing, and he keeps bringing it back. Like, you need, to, you need to say this to them. You need to do this. It's like this wild idea. For you, it might be weird. For you, you might think, that's it. <laughs> but I felt compelled to pause in our sermon today and to pray over you. And to pray something that are not my words, but they're Paul's words written to the church in Rome. It's in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, if you want the reference. But all I want you to do is to receive these words. Because they are words that I've been praying for our church. And they're words that, that I've been praying for myself and my family. All you got to do is receive these. Here we go. This is, this is my prayer for you. What then? What then shall we say in response to these things, to the lies, to the accusations, to the things we tell ourselves? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and he's also interceding for us, for you, for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? Should sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But church, we're not done yet. Here's the rest of the prayer. I'm praying it for us. For I am convinced, and I hope you are too, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present or future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That is the prayer. That is the promise. Receive that. Because that's meant for you. Receive it. Lastly, some of us can fathom that some of us can fathom that we can be free from our past mistakes. Okay. We understand that the labels people tell us don't matter, but there's still that little issue of what we tell ourselves. When are we our, we're our own worst enemy? <laughs> when our view of ourselves is so negative? What about that? What you have to do is receive the truth of who Jesus says that you are. Because a lot of us have ambitions and goals and dreams and we have things we want to do or we have a voice that we feel like people need to hear because it will bring hope to them. We feel like God's even given it to us, but we let the lies we tell ourselves hold it back. We don't chase the ambition. We don't do the daring thing. Chase the ambition though. Take a chance. Claim the truth of who God says you are and know that he's got your back. Receive. Not what you think about yourself, but what Jesus knows about yourself. Receive. You are his son and you are his daughter. And you're a vital part of his story. It's your story. It's my story. It's our story. Receive it. Receive it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Is that you're happier? Darn, really wish he wouldn't have told me that. That's the worst thing that could happen is that you move through life feeling a little less weight on your shoulders and actually being happy about something. Bummer. But that's the shallow answer. What else could happen? You could literally be a change agent for the world. You may think, well, I'll never affect anything else than my workplace. Exactly. But those people can go and affect others. It's not about numbers. It's about individual people. You have a place in their story. God's placed you in their story. You can receive who you are and help them receive who they are. If we can get free from the lies. If we can quit feeling like outcasts all the time. That's the worst thing that could happen. If you've ever felt that way, if you're here and you've ever felt like you just don't belong, you've been to these Come to Jesus series, these sermons, and you're still not sure if you really believe it. I hope you would at least do one thing for me. One thing for yourself. The reason you're listening, whether it's online or you're here, 
or it's a recording later, whatever. But the reason you're listening is probably because somebody invited you, maybe even annoyingly so. They're constantly inviting you. You're like, fine. But if something inside you thinks, you know, what if that could be true? Here's what I want you to do. That's all you have to do. Take out your phone. I won't be offended. You can do it right now. If they're sitting next to you, don't text someone next to you. That's weird. Just lean over and tell them, hi. You got to start with something. So hi. And here's what I think you should say. I'm ready. I'm ready to at least consider a place and a story bigger than my own. A new identity and freedom from the lies. Will you help me take that next step? That's what you do. For some of you, that will be the first step you've ever taken in your walk with Jesus. It'll start it. For others of you, you need to remember that you should still be taking those steps. Receive the good news, it's good. Jesus came for the outcasts. I felt that way. You felt that way. So that the outcasts would come to him. He's come for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for that truth. Pray that whatever fear that we've been holding on to, whatever false belief we've had about ourselves, whatever label has been given to us, whatever wrong we've done that holds us back in shame, God, we are free from that now. It has no place here. Take it. Let us receive a place in your story, a new identity, and who you really say that we are. We are your sons. We are your daughters. And we thank you for that. Amen.